So I'd like to begin this evening by reading this um, piece that I received on, on email. And these days there's a lot of things that come through, interesting readings and videos and poems and articles and all kinds of stuff, you know, that floods in the, in the inbox. And I like that, actually, because there's a lot of very interesting things that are, I find quite stimulating, particularly for Dharma reflection. So um, this is one thing that came in just a little while ago. Um, where I live in San Fran- outside of San Francisco, our major newspaper is the San Francisco Chronicle. So this was um, on the front page, a front page story of our, of our, our newspaper, San Francisco, San Francisco Chronicle. Said so if you read this, uh, this goes like this. If you read the front page story on the uh, in the Chronicle, you would have read about a female humpback whale who had become entangled in a spider web of crab traps and lines. She was weighted down by hundreds of pounds of traps that caused her to struggle to stay afloat. She also had hundreds of yards of line rope wrapped around her body, her tail, her torso, a line tugging in her mouth. A fisherman spotted her just east of the Farallone Islands, just outside the Golden Gate Bridge, and radioed an environmental group for help. Within a few hours, the rescue team arrived and determined that she was so bad off, the only way to save her was to dive in and untangle her, a very dangerous proposition. One slap of the tail would kill a rescuer. They worked for hours with curved knives, and eventually they freed her. When she was free, the divers say she swam in what seemed like joyous circles. She then came back to each and every diver, one at a time, and nudged them, pushed pushed them gently around. She thanked them. She said it was the most, some said it was the most incredibly beautiful experience of their lives. The God, and he will never be the same. I just find this to be a really potent story, you know, and, and when I, I mean, it's a very, it's a liberating story, you know, a situation where this mammal was really entangled fighting for her life and because of some benevolence she was freed and then the joyousness the joyousness and the gratitude thankfulness for that freedom and it really made me reflect on each and every one of us myself and all of us you know just that that same kind of sense of entanglement you know, weighted down by pounds, hundreds of pounds of lines and traps and, you know, and then the possibility of being freed from that, you know. And I think you can really appreciate the feeling of this animal when the freedom came, you know, just this incredible deep connection with the one who helped her, and then the joyousness that came, the freedom and the swimming. And in the same way, it's true for us. 
know, we feel this kind of entrapment, this entanglement. And then when we start to feel some sense of freedom, some kind way that we're, we start to feel loosened up from the entanglement, there's this, this joy that comes, this gratitude that comes. This, this dance, dancing, this joyous circles, you know? And it seems inherent in us as beings, as living beings. It's inherent for us to want to be free. We want to be free. We want the... Somebody was talking today, she wants her soul to sing, you know, the spirit to fly. You know, we, we inherently want this. We, we long for this. It's not, it's not something that just some of us start to feel. I, you know, in the metta meditation, in the loving-kindness meditation, one of the things we reflect on is that all beings want happiness. All living beings want to be happy. And we take that reflection really deep because then we can sense that even though beings do things that are harmful and hurtful and evil and destructive, deep down in the heart there is this nature that wants happiness for themselves, for others, for their loved ones. It's hard sometimes for the mind to wrap itself around that truth, that inherently we are all the same this longing for freedom, this longing for happiness and well-being. And so some of us come upon this path that the Buddha laid out as a guide, um, a map for us to this freedom, finding a way to this joyous lightheartedness in deep gratitude towards others. And the path itself is the way out of this entanglement. And the Buddha, in his wisdom, his infinite wisdom, sitting under the tree, came up with these simple four noble truths. You know, I, I think that I love this path so much because it is simple. For me, I need things that are simple. I have a simple mind. And I just like things that are very, you know, Four things, very simple. I can understand that, you know. There is suffering in this life. <laughs> I can understand that. You know, the second noble truth. There's a way, at, there's a way out of this suffering. You know, there's a cause. Sorry, the second is there's a cause for this suffering. You know, we look at that. It's the way we get attached and reactive and holding on and, and grasping and craving and... That, that, that momentum of our sense of self, wanting things to be a certain way, which we've been speaking about. And the third, there, that there is a way out of this suffering. The fourth, this path, this path that's laid out. And then the Eightfold Noble Path, it's very clear. And then each one just opens up an infinite wisdom. We can just just glean so much from the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path and all of the teachings are right there. The whole of the Buddhist teachings are right there. And so this is what we practice. This is what we, what we uh, the, the, our map for us to follow. So we know where we're going. We point ourselves in a particular direction. 
This is from um, Thich Nhat Hanh, Vietnamese Zen master, who says, If I lose my direction, I have to look for the North Star and I go north. That does not mean that I expect to arrive at the North Star. I just want to go in that direction. You know, just gives us somewhere that we can point towards. Where we arrive, we actually don't know. And I think we're all kind of experiencing that, particularly on this retreat. You know, we just point ourselves in a certain direction, and then, you know, we wind up in bed ill or, you know, with cramps, or we, you know, we stub our toe and we can't walk, or, you know, we get caught up in all this, you know, crazy love, and, you know, it's, <laughs> you know, it's like we, we, we don't know where we're going to arrive, but we just keep pointing, pointing ourselves in the direction to the north, you know, this in case the north star, and see where we wind up. But we do need some kind of direction, Otherwise, we lose our way. So this third noble truth, this realizing, it's called realizing the cessation, the ending of suffering, the realization. The third truth is when we wake up, we realize, we become realized to the causes of suffering and the end of suffering. And maybe what's more accurate is we re, it's realizing the cessation of the origin of suffering, the, the uh, cessation, the ending of the cause of the suffering. That's what we realize. We finally get, that's what the wisdom is, is that we see clearly this reactive mind, this mind that is grasping and aversive, grasping and aversive, this moving mind. And we talk about the waves on the ocean. We talk about the movement that Catherine was talking about last night. That's the movement. The movement is the grasping and the aversion, the grasping and the aversion. I remember when I really got that simplicity of that teaching and started to really get a sense of what that felt like in my own mind and body, that contracted state, both of mind and and muscles, you feel it in the body, I realized that what a good practice would probably be is just to watch moment to moment, you know, through the day, the way that my mind moved in grasping and aversion and just pay attention to that. Because if that's the way out, if that's the, the, to, to realize that the ending of suffering is to see the origin, the cause of the suffering, then that's what I need to pay attention to. Yeah, very simple. Well, so I did that, like for two years. I just kept watching. Oh, there it goes towards grasping. Oh, there it goes towards aversion, you know. And then using the skillful means, using the tools, the techniques, the resources to help myself ground and come to a more balanced state. And that's really what these tools and these techniques that we learn on the Eightfold Noble Path, they really help us, this mindfulness, this right mindfulness, right concentration, right, right effort, these ways of actually working with our own mind and our body so that we can come to balance or, as we were exploring today, the stillness. You know, the stillness that is, is here always stillness that we the stillness of the ocean that we are swimming in but not recognizing 
And so as we start to pay attention to this movement of mind, which is the, the origin of, of the suffering, then we can start to connect back again to the stillness, to the unmovingness, that unmovingness. So if we're not moving in this reactivity, then we're unmoving. We call it the unmoving stillness of the mind. And this is nirvana. This is nibbana. Nirvana in Sanskrit, nibbana in Pali. The stillness of the unmoving mind. And so when we, each time we return from the getting pulled over here and getting pulled over there, each time we have some ability to return, we are reinforcing that balance, that middle way between those two extremes, that we are reinforcing that coming back. So we talk about coming back. Otherwise, when we keep getting caught and then lost and pulled, without the recognition, without the awareness or some understanding that that's actually what we need to be paying attention to, then we get caught in the story and we dwell and we think and we analyze, we try to figure out, and then we're just reinforcing the movement. We just keep reinforcing that past and future and here and there and this and that, the duality of the extremes, and we miss the sense of presence here and now where, it is, where we can access the unmovingness. Now everything, as Catherine was talking about last night, there's still going to be the waves, but yet we know, we begin to have a sense of knowing where the stillness lies. We have somewhere to come back to. And this is so many people have spoken about this. You know, this when we return, there's a sense of how to return and where to return to, where we can anchor and ground, get support, get some uh, steadiness when the next wave comes. (laughs) For when the next wave comes, and it's going to. But we're a little more steady. Because we have our mindfulness, our awareness, some equanimity, some wisdom, some compassion for when we do get knocked off. We're developing, developing these these qualities or these resources of our nature that are inherent in our nature, inherent in our nature. This fullness of the Buddha nature, of of the intelligent nature that we are. So we're reinforcing this through our practice, returning back, returning back. And again, for me, this is so simple. You know, it's like, just tell me what I need to do. What I need to do is return back, find resource, find a way to settle into my body and my belly and my seat, my fat feet, my legs. Give me some ground, the ground to touch back into when I get ungrounded and unsteady and lost and pulled away. And that ground is contact with the, with the stillness, with the unmovingness, with nibbana. With nibbana. 
I don't think that these, when we talk about nirvana now, I don't think that this is actually so mystical, you know, or so mysterious, you know, like some we were talking a little bit this morning. It seems like, well, it can't really be for us, you know, these us simple yogis here, you know. But it is. <laughs> this is what our practice is about, is this nirvana, you know. And talking about stillness today, we're pointing, pointing towards this nirvana. Because it's not that mystical. You know, um, actually, the word came from very simple and ordinary language in the time of the Buddha. And um, I think in previous retreats we've talked a little bit about this, and I just want to talk about it again, that the word nirvana, the Sanskrit word, which is which is the, the, the older language in a way, the, the uh, pre-Buddhist language of India, nirvana translates as cool. Cool. C-O-O-L. And I think Catherine last night was talking about being cool. (laughs) You know, I mean, this is it, you know, being cool. (laughs) This coolness. And in a way, you know, culturally, you know, when we talk about being cool, you know, we don't get that bothered by a lot of things. You know, we're cool. We can, we're, we, we can, we can handle a lot of things, you know. Or sometimes we think of being street smart. You know, you really, you can handle yourself on the streets. You're cool. And in a way, this coolness, you know, this coolness, we're not so reactive, not so emotional, you know. This cool is really what nirvana is. It means, linguistically, the word means the usual extinction of fire. The extinction of fire. And this is the word that's used for this exalted state of enlightenment. For example, from uh, one of... uh, a Buddhadasa, Ajahn Buddhadasa, who was talking about this and trying to make it a little bit more ordinary, said originally it was like saying uh, in English, we'd say, wait for the rice to become Nibbana. Wait for the rice to become Nibbana. Wait for the rice to cool down. You know, it's just that. Things cool down. The heat. The heat. Which really, in our in our experience, the heat is the the greed, the lust, you know, or the aversion, the hate, and the confusion. You know, we just get get confused. We don't know where we are. These torments are called the torments of the mind. They torment us. Lust or or greed, aversion, ill will, hate, the negative force. Or the deluded or confused force of mind where we can't see clearly, we don't really know what's going on. Lost, the lost, lost connection force of mind. So in a way, these are the, this is the heat. The heat, the, um, the heat is the greed and the hatred or the, the lust and the ill will. The, the confusion more is the, the cloudiness of mind. The, you know, the, the sloth and torpid, dull, sleepy kind of... Uh, you, you, it's not hot, but it's not much of anything. You know, you just don't really know where you are. So when we talk about the heat, we're really talking about the greed and the hatred. 
And that's the tanha. In Pali, it's tanha. It's the, it's an, the, it's the craving or the grasping, in the, the Pali word tanha. And it can also be uh, translated as heat, the heat of unsatisfied desire. The heat of unsatisfied desire. So, so when we're in in the uh, experiential sense, we're, what we experience is this heat, and it, it, we burn. It's kind of a suffering. It's a dukkha. And so, when we when we find a way to begin to balance that state of mind that gets caught in those in the greed and the hatred and the get gets confused, when we start to balance that and come to more of this unmovingness. There's a coolness, a coolness that we start to feel in ourselves. We're not pulled so much by those strong forces of mind. And even when they do arise, it's not to say that there isn't room for a little lust every now and then or, you know, a little <laughs> anger now and then. You know, there's certainly for, <laughs> for us lay people, there's room for that. But we, <laughs> hopefully, I mean, what would, what would the worldly life be like, you know? <laughs> but what is actually more apparent when we are mature and the knowing and the wisdom is that we know where. We know what is true. We know where to sit. We know what is real. We don't get so pulled in the same way, pulled in ways that cause ourselves more dukkha, more pain, other people more suffering and harm. There's a way of being more settled, more settled in ourselves, even with that. And there's a way we can embrace that and hold that without being pulled around by all those forces. In fact, to the extent that we don't even really have to do anything about it, we just can feel the energy. The energy moves in us because we're human beings, but we don't have to act out on all that energy. We don't have to act out on every time we have a lustful thought. We don't have to act out on every time we want to turn around and hit somebody. You know, we just feel it. And feel the energy and know the wisdom tells us there's nothing we have to do about it. And when we don't do anything about it, then what happens? It rises up, it takes form, and then it dies away. As all things do. We don't have to feed it. We don't have to give it food. We don't have to really act out from it. Because in a way, that's just reinforcing the same pattern, reinforcing those patterns of, of greed or lust or anger or ill will. And it's the wisdom that cuts through the confusion and says, yes, it's best just to not act out on this right now because if I do, it's going to cause myself pain and others pain. You might have heard this wonderful um, quote that uh, in America during uh, the time when 9-11 was happening, this was all over the Internet. This was, everybody was sending this around. It goes like this. A Native American grandfather was talking to his grandson about how he felt about a struggle he was having. He said... I feel as if I have two wolves fighting in my heart. One wolf is is the vengeful, angry, violent one. The other wolf is the loving, compassionate one. 
And the grandson asked his grandfather, Well, which wolf will win the fight in your heart, grandfather? And the grandfather answered, The one that I feed. The one that I feed. And this is really so significant in the Buddhist teachings because the sort of the, the pith, the, the essential, central aspect of what the Buddha is pointing to is how we feed these patterns of our mind, these forces of our mind. How do we feed them? How do we give them fuel or food, nourishment, nutriment, so that they can continue to live, they can continue to grow and develop in our mind? And when we're talking about that, you know, we're talking about both giving food or nutriment to the negative or difficult states of mind, and then they grow and get bigger and get stronger and then continue to pull us around in our life, as opposed to through our wisdom and our clear seeing, when the more compassionate and loving and heartful and generous thoughts arise in the mind, those are the ones that we actually want to feed. We want to give them food. We want to give them nourishment. We want to fuel those thoughts because it's the thoughts of compassion and love and kindness and connection and wisdom that that's what we want to grow in us. That's what we want to develop. So which one's going to win? Which one's going to win? The one that I feed. So again, this really points to what Catherine was teaching this morning. It's in a way around the thought. The thought is not the problem. Thinking is not the problem because the intellect itself is actually a very amazing uh, tool that we have to function and to navigate, to negotiate in our life. But how do we have a wise relationship to our thoughts? How can we use our thoughts so that they're helpful They help us grow and develop and become more free. And therefore, others as well, the whole whole community, the whole world. So we start to turn our wisdom and our insight back upon our our mind so that we can begin to understand more how, how come this suffering, how come I find myself suffering? And then we can begin to have some understanding and work with the mind according to the, the teachings that are pointing the way so we can start to get some handle on this because otherwise we're just kind of lost in this mass of, of pain a lot of the time or just even the excitement and the exuberance and the passion and the, you know, these strong forces that run through us as human beings. Our animals, we've got our animal nature, you know, there's a lot moving, rah. But yet there's a way to start to get some handle on that, to find this refuge, I might say, this refuge in ourselves, this, this ground, this still moving ground, still unmoving ground, where we can rest, find a place of rest is a... Uh, in the poem by um, uh, what's the Matt not Sogil was the one Noshul uh, Kempo he, he was saying this exhausted mind rest come into the natural great peace rest this exhausted mind 
So this is this is what we're trying to find. We're trying to locate, trying to sense where where is this refuge of this natural peace, this nibbana, this nirvana. So going back to the word nirvana, so uh, wait for the rice to become nibbana. Buddhadasa also says. Another way that this was used, he said, fierce animals caught from the forest and trained to be tamed like cats, we say that we make them Nibbana. Just simple, ordinary language. Every day. And then in the ancient time, this language, uh, this everyday language, was taken into Dharma language because it really fit with this model of the heat, the heat of these forces of mind and finding a way to cool cool, find a coolness. Certainly through the meditation, we start to cool down, become quieter, more still. Somebody was saying in a small group, you know, finding that cool pool, you know, this, this image, this metaphor for this person of this cool pool. And then she would think of it and feel it like meditation for her often was just dipping into this cool pool. And you can just feel it, you know, maybe even as I say it. You know, this... Yeah, I think maybe Catherine used that too, around this... this there was a crazed elephant or something with being attacked by flies or, and just dump, jumping into the cool pool. You know, this... Um, that out-breath. This is nirvana. This is nirvana. And I think really the best way to understand this for ourselves is to think of a time. You know, just even think of a time either here in the last couple days or, you know, in the past. And this is a little bit what we were doing today in the inquiry. You know, think of a time when that craving, when that tanha, and remember the tanha is both the wanting and the not wanting. It's that grasping which includes both polarities. Just think of a time when that craving dropped away. When you weren't so caught up in the wanting, in the force of that, that pushing you, uh, 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 directing you into you know, finding that object, usually with the desire, with the, with the craving, it's like, that, got to have that, you know, and this whole toppling forward, this whole movement of that, <laughs> you know, whether it could be a love object, could be a, a, an addiction of some kind, you know, it could be a meditation experience, I've got to have that, and then I'm going to be happy, you know, then I'm going to be okay, or not that. If I have that, I'm not going to be happy, so get it away from here. Not that I don't like that person, I don't like that experience, I don't like being here. That, and that strong pushing, thinking of a time that that dropped away. And the interesting thing is you don't have to go very far. I mean, maybe just check your experience right now. Maybe that isn't present, that tanha, in an obvious way, in a direct way. There's, there may be no real sense of, well, there's nothing I'm really wanting right at this moment. I feel 
kind of quiet and peaceful and at ease and interested, or maybe not interested, maybe there is a lot of aversion going on to what I'm saying and to me and, you know, to being here at Guy House, no, but maybe it isn't this moment. But the point is, these moments are actually very ordinary, too. And the Buddha is talking about the absence of tanha. This is the end of suffering. This is freedom. These moments, when we have these moments when it drops away, we call this momentary freedom. This is momentary freedom, and it's just like a glimpse into nibbana, into freedom. It is freedom. In that moment, you are not bound. You are not entangled. You are not uh, caught in that suffering. And we know the difference. All of us know the difference. When the mind is really has a lot of oppression, a lot of pressure. I know the, the wanting mind. I remember times where the wanting mind can get so strong, I can kind of feel like I'm in a trance. And I'm just thinking of one experience. Um, just came to mind a, a number of years ago. Um, I was just about to start teaching a retreat at the Insight Meditation Society, and at the time I was putting my, uh, some color on my hair. I, I had uh, brunette hair at that time, and I would put kind of a red, kind of like having a little bit of a red tint to my brunette hair. And I tried a new product. <laughs> and I put this stuff on my hair. And I had like this blazing red hair. You know, it was like really red. And it wasn't supposed to be like that. And I was flying off to teach this retreat the next day. (laughs) And this wasn't, you know, something that I could just wash out. And so, oh, it was just so hard for me. I I went right into all this kind of, oh, I don't want this like this. You know, what are people going to think? And they're going to know I dye my hair. (laughs) And a Dharma teacher doesn't dye her hair, you know, and all this kind of, you know, becoming the Dharma teacher. You know, uh, the day when I was doing my hair, I wasn't the Dharma teacher. But But as soon as, you know, I put the, 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 the stuff on my hair and it became all red, and then I have to fly off to sit in front of, you know, 100 people with this flaming red hair... You know, it's like, what are people, you know, this image, you know, it was just flew right in the face of this image that I felt I had to have at that time. No, and I remember the state, you know, this was Tanha. You know, I was just in a trance. I couldn't see clearly. I couldn't think clearly. What was I going to do? How I was going to be there? What are people going to think? You know, my mind was completely wrapped up in this craving for this to be otherwise, for this to be different. And it was, it's really good for me to remember that because that was tanha. I know what tanha is. You know, I mean, I'm sh- I, that was just an obvious one. I mean, I've had many, 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 many moments of tanha. But that was so clear to me. So thinking for a moment... When it drops away, what's that like? When you're not bound up in this heat, the heat of wanting, 
this is this is the taste of nirvana the taste you don't have to go far it doesn't have to be something so esoteric I might never understand it it's not for me. It couldn't possibly be something that I could know in my lifetime. But it's so really very ordinary when we understand what the Buddha was really pointing to. When we know, when we have the sense of this cooling, It gives us a way to remember. And I think that so much of our practice really is about remembering. We could even say mindfulness is remembering. When we're mindful, we remembered that we were lost and we come back. So remembering, we just remember. And the more we have glimpses, the more we have tastes, the more we understand from our wisdom and our insight what this nibbana is, what this nirvana is, we can return back. (sighs) Breathe and rest. Rest back into this coolness, this stillness, this unmovingness, this balance. And Buddhadasa also, Ajahn Buddhadasa says, of course we have to have these moments, these pauses in between the the difficult mind states. We have to have these pauses or we would go crazy. I mean, just think about your life if you didn't have times where you had some, uh, some uh, times when, when you weren't caught up in all of that, if you didn't have some times of refuge, times of pause, times to recharge. I mean, we'd go crazy. The world, we, we'd kill, everybody would be killing each other. We'd all be dead, I think, you know, from the, from the passions. So, so we have to have these moments. These, sometimes we talk about mindfulness as the pause that refreshes. Unfortunately, unfortunately, it's also Coca-Cola's slogan. You know, I don't like to really promote that, but it's it. But it's like that—the pause that refreshes. <sighs> Just taking that breath. Catherine says so often that out breath. You know, take that out breath, and that's it. Is that pause that refreshes? It it refreshes our mind and our body, even if it's just for an in- instant or a minute. We are reinforcing that resource. We are touching back into our, in a way, the still, the stillness, the unmovingness, the balance once again. And it doesn't, it doesn't mean that we have to be there all the time. You know, it's like that metaphor that if you want to fill a bucket of water, you only have to put in a drop at a time. And if you just keep putting in a drop of water, that bucket's going to fill up. You're going to get it. You're going to get a bucket of water. And so the same with these moments of mindfulness, these moments of just touching back into the quiet, to the, to the stillness. It's a drop. And it just keeps filling and filling and filling. And as we continue, 
And as we stay connected to the practice of the returning and the remembering and the connecting back, the the bucket gets fuller and fuller and fuller. And what it gets full of, taking this metaphor, not water, but when we're coming back to the still point or to this balance point again and again, we're filling up with our nature. We're filling up with Buddha nature. Not that we're empty of Buddha nature, but we're beginning to remove the obscurations. The obscurations which are the forces of the passions that run through the mind. This is from Ajahn Chah. I think I read something from Ajahn Chah every time. He's just so amazing. Well, he's really an elder in our tradition about this mind about this mind in truth it isn't really anything it's just a phenomenon within itself it's already peaceful that the mind is not peaceful these days is because it follows moods the real mind doesn't have anything to it it is simply nature the untrained mind gets lost and follows things. It forgets itself. Then we think it is we who are upset or at ease or whatever. But really, this mind, the the trained mind of ours, is already unmoving and peaceful. Really peaceful. Just like a leaf that is still as long as no wind blows. If, If a wind comes up, the leaf flutters. The fluttering is due to the wind. The fluttering is due to following sense impressions, these desire. If it doesn't follow them, it doesn't flutter. So we train the mind to know those impressions and not get lost in them. Our practice is simply to see the original mind which is already peaceful. Just this is the aim of all this difficult practice we put ourselves through. To see the original mind, which is already peaceful, which is Nibbana. We don't have to go very far. And I think that for many of us, I know it was true for me, that, you know, those times when I wasn't caught up in a lot of stuff, there was more the sense like, oh, yeah, well, right now it's okay, but in a minute it's going to come, you know, or in five minutes the whole thing's going to come back, you know, so... And then during that time I would just be anticipating the next wave. And I wouldn't really be present fully with the fact that actually not much is going on in this moment (laughs) because already there was a little bit of fear about what was going to happen next and so more and more I've realized that actually when there's a moment or a few moments when the mind is at rest when there's peace it's like really appreciate that appreciate that moment In fact, celebrate that moment. (laughs) So 
Wow, my mind is free right now. Imaho, hooray. You know, and just let that feeling, I just let that feeling come up, you know, just really appreciate and feel gratitude and, and grateful for the freedom that's revealing itself in that moment. Because the fear, the fear and the anticipation of what's going to come next isn't going to help me defend myself against that next wave. In fact, what it's going to do is make me feel more unsteady because I'm in fear. And I'm not grounded in presence. And so more and more we can see that, you know, that it's, that it's not helpful. Our fear isn't helpful. We know that, but a lot of times we don't know how to unwind from it. But these moments when we actually feel this openness, this stillness, this ease, it's like, <sighs> love that. My mind is free. I'm not following. I'm not getting lost. I'm really present. Ah, it's like that cool drinking a cool, some cool water, or being in that cool pool. So this is one way of talking about our practice understanding, really understanding from the Four Noble Truths what it is that we're working with. What are we actually supposed to be paying attention to? Otherwise, everything's fine. You know? When there's no problem, there's no problem. And Manindraji, uh, one of our teachers, uh, Indian man from Calcutta, Joseph Goldstein's first teacher, Manindraji used, used to say, when you're happy, be happy. No problem. <laughs> when you're not happy, then you need to pay attention. <laughs> See what's going on. But when you're happy, be happy. So, you know, it's like knowing what to follow. When it's present, and then we have skillful means to pull that back. We return mindfulness, coming back to the present moment, coming into the full relationship with what is happening. And when we come into full relationship with what is happening, we bring all of ourselves, and that includes our nature, our Buddha nature. Our mindfulness, our awareness, our love, our compassion, our wisdom, there's where we have the resources. When we're in the present, in relationship, in contact with, then we have resources. If we're not here, we have no resources. If we're lost, we're lost. And that's the reason we can't judge ourselves when we're lost, because when we're lost, we're lost. I mean, what good does it do to judge ourselves when we're lost? Because we can't help ourselves. Only when we're back, then we have something to work with.
when we're here, then we have something to work with. Then we, can, we have all of our resources available to us. That's why we have to be so compassionate to ourselves. Because we can't help ourselves when we're lost, when the tanha takes over, when the, when the mind is overcome with the passions. It's very hard to help ourselves. So sometimes we really have to wait this is where the cultivation of patience is so helpful. We can bring some wisdom. We know, well, there's not much we can do. I can do right now. I just have to see if I can sit and just be still or just you know, go somewhere that feels um, nourishing or be with people that are nourishing or talk to somebody or breathe or something because there's not much I can do until this wave passes. These are strong, these forces of mind. And the interesting thing is that as we become more open, more conscious, more spacious, there's more space for all the unconscious material to come up. And we can get hit again. (laughs) And then get hit again because the space is so big. (laughs) But... The good news is that when there's more space, we also have more resources to deal with the big way. There's more wisdom, there's more compassion, there's more ground. So we don't get knocked over quite in the same way. And maybe you've seen that as your own practice has matured. The waves still come, but you stay a little steadier. You know, like those 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 dolls, those clown dolls that that have um, they're plastic dolls, but on the bottom they have a lot of sand and weight, so you can hit them and then they come right back upright. You know, you can kind of why would why do the kid why do you knock them around anyhow? <laughs> That's the point. You know, I guess kids, you know, they gotta knock them around. So. <laughs> You have these plastic dolls. <laughs> it's a little cruel, actually. But anyhow, these plastic clowns. And, and so nothing can really knock them over. And in the same way, that's what starts to happen for us as we're more in touch with this nature, steadiness, groundedness, this balance, this unmovingness, this point. And again, it doesn't mean that everything else isn't moving. (laughs) But something else is steady. Here. And in that is a strength. In that is a power. In that is a firmness. In a, a wisdom and intelligence. Which gives us more and more capacity to deal with what comes at us. We, as we mature, as we grow and develop in the practice, we, we can handle more because of that. This is why, you know, we cultivate this stillness. We cultivate this connection to this ground, to this unmovingness with a mind and the body, this unified field of mind-body, which we call samadhi, or a concentrated mind. Concentration in our practice as a support for this, 
So we know this. We can touch it. We can remember it. We know where to return back to. And this is what we're, we cultivate in our practice. This uh, was at... I was at a last last summer. I was in with my family in Ohio, and we were watching the fireworks on the Fourth of July, at night. You know, we wait till it's dark, and then the fireworks go off. And I don't know whether I said it or whether somebody was with me said it. And it was just this kind of revelation: or the, the fireworks do not disturb the night sky. The fireworks do not disturb the night sky. So there can be fireworks, but there's something that's undisturbed, unaffected, untouched. And then anything can go off. But we're undisturbed, unmoving in the face of that. This is also called equanimity. Nirvana or Nibbana is called equanimous peace, the deepest equanimity. Equanimity, this unmovingness, unreactive stillness. So I want to end with this poem, if I can see it. (laughs) Hold it really far away. (laughs) Maybe I should have Catherine read it. (laughs) It's a beautiful poem, I really, and I don't want to fumble around with it. Don't say, don't say there is no water to solace the dryness of our, at our hearts. I have seen the fountain springing out of the rock wall and you drinking there. And I too, before your eyes, found footholds and climbed to drink the cool water. The woman of that place, shading her eyes, frowned as she watched, but not because she grudged the water, only because she was waiting to see we drank our fill and were refreshed. Don't say, don't say there is no water. That fountain is there among its scalloped greens and gray stones. It is still there and always there with its quiet song and strange power to spring in us up and out through the rock. Don't say... Don't say there is no water to solace the dryness at your heart. I have seen the fountain springing out of that rock and you drinking there. Let's sit for a moment.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.